0: this day. Thank you for your presence, the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us. Um, Without the help of the Eucharist, um, strengthen us in our efforts to carry you, to make you present in all that we do, um, particularly in our efforts to put ourselves away um, so that um, you can come to your fullness in us. Let that be. uh, Watch over, Father strip keep him safe Amen. I've got a couple general thoughts that aren't gonna fit neatly into what I organized um, but um, I' so I want to give you some thoughts and um, let me get to that in a second let's do the poem okay. Um, Jones Barry was um, a, a, a friend, a Quaker. They called They were called friends. I think mm-hmm. they still are today, but I think most people know them as Quaker. He was a friend, a very devout man, um, very much like a Quaker. Um, he was a close friend to most of the transcendentalists, I think was um, thought to be included in that group with uh, Emmet Ruff. Waldo Emerson and Thoreau and um, Charles Bronson—I can't remember. It's been so long since I've looked at that group. But and so many of the the more prominent members, Emerson and Thoreau, particularly Emerson, used to make fun of jones Very because he—they um, were all Unitarians. You all know what Unitarians are. The, you all—you all, you all know the Transcendentalist movement. that um, the, the middle of the 19th century, with um, Hawthorne and Melville, they lived at that time. Thoreau, wrote Walden, out in the woods, and transcendentalists, because they held this p- position of this transcendental power in the world affecting us. They were Unitarians, so they lived at that time when the when the um, the Protestant Religion was really in decline and decay. It was in collapse. All of the, the Protestant theologies had faded. Um, people ceased believing in Calvin and Luther the way they had. So the, the whole Protestant world had, had um, sort of declined into a code, a social code of respectability. and you get it parodied everywhere and Mark Twain, Miss Watson who was very respectable and very Protestant. They live by codes. They, they don't believe in the doctrines that, that they held when they first came here, that they were adamant about initially, fervent about. That was all gone. The, the after effects was this transcendentalist movie. It was very intellect. sorry, movement. It was this very intellectual way of looking to the life. Emerson was in the forefront. He's, one, he's looked at as one of the sort of founders of the American psyche to thine own self be true, follow your own drumbeat. Um, self-reliance is one of his. I mean, to me, they're horrible, horrible. When, if, you, if you watch the people who put those into practice, it just leads to this kind of self-centeredness. And you're not one with another. Um, so the Unitarians were not Trinitarian. They believed only in one God. They, they, they um, opposed the Trinity, the idea of a Trinity, didn't believe in Christ the way we do so. Jones Vary was one very devout friend, Quaker, and Emerson used to make fun of him because Jones Very believed that the Holy Spirit moved him and that nothing that he did that was good um, could be separated from the Spirit. It's that, it's that belief that man is completely corrupted and, and the only good he can do is under the influence of the Spirit. So Emerson would make fun of him and 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 go to the mantelpiece in his room and put his arm up here and say, So when I put my arm up here, are you going to say that I only did it because the Spirit moved me? It was that sort of mockery. Right. <coughs> Jones very believed that devoutly, that all of his good acts had their source in the movement of the Spirit. So he had this profound sense that through the Holy Spirit, um, man became one with another, completely completely one. It's the idea of the indwelling of persons in the Trinity, that you became one with another completely. Um, And without the Spirit we were lost here in our world. (coughs) So this poem, The Lost, to me it's one of the most beautiful poems um, in, in our tradition, the American literary tradition. It's just lovely. He's not a well-known poet. He's a minor poet. He's not a major He's not like um, Frost, you know, or Whitman, Walt Whitman, who was looked at as the giant, um, or other major poets like that. He's looked at um, lots of people don't even know him, but if you know American literature, literature, American letters, it's, you you can't read it without coming across this man and um, I think some of his poems are among the most beautiful poems that we have in our tradition. This is one of them. I'm just going to read one because we've got so much to do with the wanderings today. The Lost. The fairest day that ever yet is shown will be when thou the day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. But thou art far away among time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them, thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys, but wilted now thou hangest upon thy stem. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells again in melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. And thou, new risen, It's these wonders live that now to them does all thy substance give. Come on in. Do you have The Lost? Jones, do you have The poems? Let me read this once again. No, 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 I love reading this. I'm doing it for me. Um, Just think about the images here. The the fairest day will be when um, when we become one with the, what we behold. The whole experience of beholding the, that we assume that made up our experience in Eden that there was no division, no, it wasn't I and an object, we didn't objectify things, there was a beholding, people were one with. Mm-hmm. but that's I think our sense of Eden, we lost it and that's the sense of what will happen in paradise and that's what happens as a matter of fact in Dante's Paradiso if we get there um, Dante and Beatrice are moving towards the Imperium, and at some point he begins to read her mind and realizes that they're becoming one even while they're separate. So, um, this is that sort of experience that he's imagining, but he says, Thou art far away among time's toys. What a lovely line. We are so preoccupied with things here in this world, we let them become too much with us, and this subject-object dichotomy defines our life That's the way we live that now to them thou dost all thy substance give. We give too much importance to things here and lose that sense of singing and harmony, the, the music that should exist between two things that are one. So let me read it once more. It's really complicated. That's I was gonna read it twice anyway. Truly, I was, I was. The fairest day that ever yet has shone Will be when thou the day within shalt see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown When thou the flower thou lookest on Shall be. But thou art far away amongst time's toys. Thyself the day thou lookest for in them. Thyself the flower that now thy eye enjoys. But wilted now, thou hangest upon thy stem, where wilted thine. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree, thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells again to melody, when we hear that bird as it was, it would be because we are as we were meant to be. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree, thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice, and thou new risen midst these wonders live. That now to them does all thy substance again. <clears throat> okay. Can you either move your podium over there or move that? I can't. You know. okay, so you don't stand in front of the board. Um. Okay. A couple of things. I when I started putting the adventure, it's been a a long time since I've looked at the Odyssey like any of these things um, even though there's so much a part of who I am. Um, I began looking at the wanderings again and realizing how much there was there um, not clear. The book opens in the ninth and a half year. Odysseus has been on his um, journey home for nine and a half years. He's been at Ogesia, Calypso's Island, for eight years. And um, Athena says to Zeus, why are you doing this to this just man? You're going to make it impossible for men to be just any longer if this is what happens to them. Zeus sends Hermes to Ogesia to set him free, and Athena goes to Ithaca um, to help Telemachus. And, and as you know, if you've read the Telemachi, the first four books, he sets off in his own voyage to find his father. It, it's, a, it's a time of coming into manhood for Telemachus. But here. <coughs> Um, when we pick up Odysseus, he gets free, set free from Calypso with Hermes' help. Remember that. He, he, cannot get, he cannot get free of calypso. Men cannot get free of the power that women have over them without divine help. That's how great their power is. Sorry the women aren't here. I'm sorry the men aren't here. And he can't get free from Circe, who hasn't for a year. Of the nine and a half years that he's away, nine of those years are under the influence of women. He can't get free from either one of them without the help of a god. That's how great the power is that women have over men. Um, he gets free, he builds a raft, sets off, he's on the sea for 20 days, he crashes a theme, it helps him, he comes to Scaria, the land of the Phayaquian, and it's here he tells his adventures. Mm-hmm. So he goes back to recount what happens. Now that's crucial to get here, but my point right now is that as I went over these adventures I, once again I realized how important they are and I intended to just give one meeting to them and thought that's foolish so what I'm gonna do is stop here before we get to the land of the dead and deal with some other things and then next time we meet I want to finish the adventures what's going on there in some ways to me anticipates Freud and goes way beyond anything Freud could do, way beyond anything Freud could do. It's the whole inner life of man that's invisible to us that gets opened up here at the very beginning. Dante's going to take us back into this world when we go into the inferno in the Divine Comedy. He he was made able to do that because of what Homer did here. So the whole journey is into the interior, into these underlying archetypes that exist in all of us and the, the greater majority of them are feminine. So Odysseus is learning to come to terms with woman be- before he can get home. That's how important it is. So, <clears throat> originally I thought I'd try to do the adventures in one meeting, but it's just going to be impossible. So what I'm going to do is see how far we can get today. Um, morning. Good
1: morning. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Glad you could make it. Um, would not be the same without you here. Well and I brought cookies. <laughs> <laughs> we come this way soon. Uh, <laughs> Is this okay? Right where would here or here? Where would you, here, here, you like?
1: Oh we probably here? Put, here, here you
0: go, yeah. Oh bless your heart. Thank you. Thank you. Is that okay? That's good. Um
1: class today
0: huh? Yep. Where two or three are gathered.
1: That's right. Is there anything new for me today?
0: No, we just Uh just read the poem. Um, Oh, okay. Thank you. So what I I want to look at today are the adventures and prophecies that I want to look particularly at reading and this whole question of fools. Remember mm-hmm. last time when we looked at the opening lines? God, of course, it's, I should start over.
1: <laughs> no, no.
0: I should. You, all of that is old. I'm going to do this. You two are too good to be here because I thought Mass is not here. Is anybody? I didn't wasn't sure anybody would come today. Um, yeah. Here, here. I'm going to read Jones very again. Sorry for those of you who've heard it. I hope you can, if you enjoyed it, you'll be okay. able to enjoy it once more. <laughs> the, poet, the poem, the poem reading today is by a by a man who lived in the 19th century, at the time that the transcendentalist movement was at its height with. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau and Orestes Bronson, that group. It was at a time when the Protestant religion was in decline in the 19th century. The whole Eastern Seaboard which had been Protestant, vitally Protestant when the first settlers came here, um, was really in its death throes. Um, Nobody believed in Calvin or loser the way they have or predestination. The great books on that crisis is Moby Dick and Scarlet Letter. And this is not the place to go into but it's really clear in Moby Dick and the Scarlet Letter that both Hawthorne and Melville see that, that this is a crisis moment for Christianity. That The Protestant beliefs that they all held at that time were dying um, and two worldviews were in conflict with each other a scientific worldview and a Christian worldview. Two different ways of reading. One that's scientific and another that's biblical were colliding. And um, the transcendentalist was an intellectual movement that grew out of that crisis. It was unitarian. It it disavowed the Trinity. Um, Emerson didn't believe in the Trinity. They were unitarians. They believed in one God and that God was almost not a God. It was more like an idea. Jones Vary lived at that time, he was a very devout Quaker. He he saw himself as a friend, that's what they were called, the Quakers. And he had this very strong belief in the Holy Spirit, the workings of the Holy Spirit. He believed that like most Protestants, that that man is so corrupted that without the help of the Spirit, he can do no good. So whatever good he does is only possible through the Spirit when the Spirit is active in a person, he actually becomes one with the world around him through the workings of the Spirit, because that's what the Spirit does. He makes us one with each other. So in this poem, he's talking about the lost. Those of, those of us who are so preoccupied with the world that um, the Spirit is quiet, not present, in us, and as a result, we, we tend to look at things as objects. We, we don't become one with them. So when we look at the bird or the flower, we're not one with the beauty of the flower, we're not one with the singing of the bird. They're objects. Um, but, but a day will come in paradise when, when that dichotomy, that schism, that divorce will be over and man will be one, completely in harmony with the world around him. So this is Jones very, the lost. <clears throat> the fairest day that ever yet has shown will be when thou, the day within, shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown, when thou, the flower thou lookest on, shall be. But thou art far away among time's toys. Thyself, the day thou lookest for in them, thyself, the flower that now thine eye enjoys, but wilted now thou hangest upon thy stem. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice, and thou new risen midst these wonders live, but now to them. Dust all thy substance give. You give too much to the world of things, and they're like time's toys, the things to be, and we are removed. We're not one with a flower. In paradise, that will all change. Um, thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells into in melody, the song is thine. There will be nothing man ex- experiences. This is, you're going to laugh at you. There will be nothing man experiences in paradise that doesn't take the form of poetry. (laughs) Which poetry? (laughs) How can it it be otherwise? There will be nothing we do that won't be in harmony. Perfect harmony, perfect music, you know? Mm -hmm. It'll all be poetry. That's where poetry's tending. It's not this stuff that you should laugh at because it's quaint or effeminate or whatever people think Anyway. It's a beautiful poem. I think it's one of the loveliest American poems that we have. Um, okay. I've got um, two general thoughts that I want to share with you before we start. And they don't bear, di- they bear directly, but they're not going to fit in with what I'm doing. But I'm, I have to say these. Um, one of them is this. I, I've been struggling with this. When I go to Mass, um, we, we went to the Priory at UD um, yesterday, I think and we're immediately before the Eucharist and you know, the readings and and I've got this stuff on my mind. I just have to say this again I, um, um, Dick was making fun of me after a couple of classes ago saying that I think Bob's founding a new religion, making Achilles a Christ and Odysseus a Christ and I think he was, I, I'm pretty sure he was having fun with me but but I, I have to say this um, I hope it's clear how much I think of Achilles and Odysseus. That I, I think they're extraordinary, and I see I see them as prefigurations of Christ. They are not Christ, but I've got to, I've got to say this: they're not Christ. They're not God. They are images of what human beings are capable of becoming in the natural order, and I can't say that strongly enough, um, particularly given the Protestant world that we live in today. Um, I, I I mentioned. Um, Benedict's Regensburg address, didn't I? In, in This group, yeah, and and his concerns that we had, we were losing the sense of the logos, this Hellenic sense of the logos, that the fundamentalist Protestant and the and the uh, Islamic fundamentalists have no sense of the logos in nature, and I believe most Catholics growing up in America don't. That in some ways most Catholics in America have become Protestantized we tend to look at things in terms of black and white. Nature is blasted. It's gone. That's that 19th century crisis. So so much of the work that I've been doing, particularly in the poems that I've been giving you, are my efforts to, to, to try to show that Christ is present everywhere. Anyway, I hope there's no confusion here. Achilles and Odysseus are not Christ. They're not close to him. But they are extraordinary examples of a goodness that is possible in nature that in lots of ways um, so closely resembles something that Christ reveals to us that I think it's important to see that connection. So, let there be no confusion. They are not Christ, but in amazing ways they are prophetic of him. They, are, they already give glimpses of many of the things that Christ reveals. There are things that they don't know because Christ is God, all, all God, all man. So there are things they can't know, but there are amazing ways in which they anticipate it. And that was the whole effort of my last talk on the alien. It'll be the same for our last talk on the Odyssey too. The second thing is this. Just in keeping with this notion of the Logos in nature, it has to be said, in Homer's world, there's, everything is good. Everything is good. There's almost no sense of an evil. We will get to something close to that in Virgil's world when we get to the Aeneid. But um, there's nothing that is not good. Polyphemus takes out, um, eats half of Odysseus's men, picks them up, crushes them, and eats them. He's a brutal, brutal figure. It's important to remember that Odysseus is struggling at sea because Poseidon is angry at him for taking out Polyphemus's eye. Mm-hmm. And once again we're reminded that, that the only way that I can look at the Homeric world is that Homer's aware in the way that we are far more consciously aware that we exist in a fall. The god. There are three themes announced at the beginning of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the last one is, a god is angry. Apollo's angry at the Achaeans, remember, because Agamemnon refused that uh, ransom. Poseidon's angry at Odysseus. Um, Men unknowingly commit sins. Odysseus didn't deliberately take out the eye of a son of Poseidon. We don't have any sense that he was aware that he was Poseidon's son at all. And Poseidon's angry at him, not for anything he knew he was doing. So Homer's very aware that human beings act out of a blindness and that their actions have consequences that very often they're not aware of. Uh, In in amazing ways, that, to me, anticipates Christ. Here's just one direct line forward to Christ. When Plato's one of the greatest readers of Homer, even though he objects to him, in one of the dialogues, I think it's the... Phaedo when um, Socrates has been condemned con- condemned to death. after In the Apology, the, we get the courtroom scene and Socrates is condemned to death. It's an unjust trial. I don't know if you're aware of the, the whole Socratic thing, but he's brought before a court and accused of being impious and it, it's so clear that the people who are accusing him are the ones who are impious. He's He is a pious man. He anticipates Christ. He's being unjustly Condemned. It's it's a it's a prefiguration of Herod and Pilate with Christ. He, he's unfairly condemned. He goes to jail. In the Phaedo, his friends come and try to persuade him to leave, to run away, to, to escape. Socrates says, No, I can't. Um, the state raised me, even though the state's wrong in what it's doing, my life depended on it. He he has to suffer an unjust death. He knows it and he says that it's better to suffer a wrong than to give suffering yourself or to do a wrong to another. How much does that anticipate Christ? It's wiser, more virtuous to suffer a wrong before you do a wrong to another person. As far as I can tell he got that from Homer. Odysseus didn't know that he was Committing a crime when he put out Polyphemus's eye, he wanted to get out of the cave. But we know at the beginning Paul, er, Poseidon, P- Poseidon is angry at Odysseus because he took out the eye of the sun. So Homer is very aware that, that men may commit these wrongs without fully knowing, without fully being aware of what they're doing. So remember, in Homer's world, there is no evil as we know it. There is no black wine. The, the, the natural order for Homer is good. Polyphemus is brutal. He's not evil. <coughs> men can become really bad by their actions. Men are capable. We'll we see this with the suitors. Well, You've already seen it. They're capable of doing really bad things. <coughs> um, but that's because men... Um, Can become impious and turn from the gods and become these monstrous creatures themselves. Okay, Um, what I'd like to do this morning is go through some of the readings um, very, very quickly. And then I'd like to touch on some of the more important themes. Discipline, discipline in our work, particularly the, um, with the with uh, the adventures. Um, so we we left the Telemachi with Telemachus um, setting off to find his father. He went to Pylos and Sparta and. If you remember, in the way that I set that up, um, mm-hmm. I, I, it seems to me that Homer's showing us in both Pylos and Sparta, Nestor's home and Menelaus's home, that both, all three homes, Spar- Sparta, Ithaca, Pylos, have disorders, they're overcome by disorders. And, and Pylos is worse because you've got 100 suitors um, trying to take Odysseus's place. Um, if you remember, I suggested that, that one of the imbalances or disproportions of, of Nestor's home is that there's no place for the wife. They not only live in the past with a wound. He lost his son, his, his, his present son, grieves for having lost his brother, Antiochus, remember? <laughs> Nestor's lost his son. He lives in the past he, with these heroic tales. He can't stop talking about himself. Like the men in the Iliad, he's full of boasting. He has to justify himself. He has to keep talking about himself. His wife makes that one appearance when they, when they offer the exactly. sacrifice, remember? That's it. Like she and her daughter, or she put out a cry. There's no wife in that home. It's a male-dominated home, to put it through briefly. When we get to Sparta, um, again we see a home that lives in the past, that it has not escaped the past and its wounds, its suffering. Helen's answer to that is to give drugs. Remember, I think I read, didn't read yeah, that passage yeah, where she said, it'll make you forget the death of your father and mother. Mm-hmm. I, did I comment on that? What would happen to Telemachus if he took that? Because remember, he, he's holding himself against um, Orestes, Agamemnon's son, because Orestes killed Agisthos, the man who killed his father. And right at the beginning everybody praises him, the gods praise him, humans praise him because he had the courage to do such a hard thing. Telemachus keeps berating himself because he wonders if he will have the courage to do what he has to do, which is defeat these suitors. So, what would happen if a son were given drugs and he had disorders in his home to deal with? When the drugs make you forget the death of your father and mother, what can you do? So Helen's answer is to take drugs. and So there are these wounds of the past, the betrayals, the, you know... I, I, I think Homer means us to see that both Nestor and Menelaus have good marriages, but there's something lacking. They live in the past too much. And the whole question of the Odyssey is, in some sense, how to escape the past? How do, how do we deal with the burdens of the past in order to come into the present which, in a remarkable way, anticipates Christ. We can't keep living in a before and after. We have to find our our meaning here in the present. For a Christian, it would be redemption and living Christ. And, but it's, it's already here for Homer. So Telemachus sets off to find his father. When the adventures begin, Odysseus is... Um, on Calypso's island, and Hermes Irmy comes. Hermes comes to um, set him free. Just very briefly on eighty-nine, page eighty-nine. Let, I just want to run through some passages here in the adventures. Um, remember, Ogesia is in the, in the opening book. In the very beginning, is called the navel of the waters. The navel of the, its the umbilical cord between Earth and the divine. The umbilical cord, the navel of the waters. The bottom of page 89. But after he'd made his way to the far-lying island, he stepped then out of the dark blue sea and walked on over the day land until he came to the great cave where the lovely-haired nymph was at home. She's singing and weaving, like the women do here. She was singing inside the cave with a sweet voice as she went up and down the loom and wove with a um, golden shuttle. Um, Circe sings and weaves. On page 90 at the bottom, (coughs) tells Calypso that he's come to set Odysseus free. You, a goddess, ask me, a god, why I came, and therefore I will um, tell you the whole truth of the tale. It is you who ask me. It was Zeus who told me to come here. I did not wish to who would willingly make the run across the endless salt water and there is no city of men nearby nor people. Now remember she lives in a cave. There are no men close by. This is where Odysseus has been. Um, She says at the bottom 91 I gave him my love and cherished him and I have hopes also that I could make him immortal and all the days to be endless, but since there's no way for another god to elude the purposes of Zeus, she says, let him go. Her great gift to Odysseus, the thing that she most represents, is wanting, offering him immortality and he refuses. Now think about the importance of this. Hector wanted to be immortal. What would it mean for a human being to be immortal in Homer's world? Would he continue to age as a mortal? Mm-hmm forever so that he would just wither grotesquely is that image clear mm-hmm. or would he become immortal? like I mean it's hard to imagine the point is he refuses it because his natural home country I mean his nature as a human being is to come home whatever this home still means but her temptation to him is offer him immortality let's just hold on to that for a little bit um, <clears throat> Hermes tells Calypso that he's not appointed to die there. There's a different fate. His end is elsewhere. It's not for him to be there to end his days. So he builds the raft. He sets off to sea to go home. And as you know, the Poseidon crashes the raft. Mm-hmm. He's angry at him. Um, and he ends up on Scheria, the Phaeacian island, and asleep. Athena goes to Nausicaa. Um, and in a dream, she awakens these feelings of marriage, and tells her to makes her aware that she needs to go take care of the laundry to get the clothes ready. Hold on to that image. Nausicaa is given to dreaming, to idealizing things. When she sees Homer or Odysseus, she she sees the possibility of a husband, this handsome looking man, and, and Alkinus, her father, even offers her in marriage. Um, um, when Odysseus bathes there, Athena glorifies him, and Nausicaa looks at him as a god. Keep those images in, in mind when you think about um, uh, Nausicaa. On page one twelve, um, the top of the page, about line thirty or so. Um, Athena comes and says to him as he goes to Alcanus's palace, they do not have very much patience with men from the outlines, do they, nor do they lovingly entertain the men come from elsewhere. Um, she mentions the gift of the shaker Poseidon. Um, when, when he comes to the palace, he's taken by wonder at the beauty, the extraordinary beauty of things. Line forty-five, a wonder to look at. Going over on line ninety, the next page. There was a silver lentil above a golden handle. Dogs made out of gold and silver were on each side, of fashioned to perfection in his craftsmanship and cunning. The it's all of this was made by the by the god Hephaistos You know, who, God is the Hephaestus, the god of craft. Yes, it's the god of craft. Um. Ephesios. We'll come to him in a second. Really important. There's the there is the all of the qualities of a divine craftsmanship, a divine beauty to the whole Falcon way of life. Um, on page one hundred sixteen, Odysseus is um Welcomed into the palace and fed. Um, at the bottom of 116, this is one of the earlier phrases of what I called the ravenous belly. It's what Homer calls the ravenous belly. We're going to come across it again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times he uses that phrase, but here, For there is no other thing so shameless as to be set over the belly, but she rather uses constraint and makes me think of her even when sadly worn, when in my heart I have sorrow as now I have sorrow in my heart, and still forever she tells me to eat and drink and forces me to forgetfulness. Sometimes the appetites of the belly are so strong that it takes away our sense of suffering. Even if we're in the middle of suffering, we still have to eat. (laughs) We we have a hard time denying ourselves. Odysseus tells the court um, <coughs> where he's come from and why. Alcinous gives a feast, and Demodocus, who's the um, singer there, begins to sing about the war at Troy, and it brings tears to Odysseus's eyes. And that's when Alcinous notices it and um, um, wants to hold gains as a way of consoling him. But for a moment, just think Demodocus is the Homer figure in this community, he's the bard, the seer he sings the song in the center of the community. He pulls everybody together. So we're made aware that the poet, the bard, the seer, the, the vates, the vates, the Latins call it, the seer, um, he's the one who is the source of knowledge. Everybody defines themselves by these stories. They, they let a people know its history, its identity with the land. And Demonicus is blind. Homer says he was reft of his sight. The gods took away his sight, just like Homer. So I think the assumption is for us as readers that like Homer, because he lost his sight, it drove him in, that he has a greater awareness of inner things than most men, like Homer himself. They hold the games. One of the five insults Odysseus. They have a contest, and um, Odysseus defeats Eurelius, the the man who's so disrespectful. Um, go on over to page 129. Warning. No, I'm sorry. No, no, don't be. Come on, glad you're here. So, if we wait around long enough, this may fill up. <laughs> I'm getting happier and happier. Yes, we have any volunteers to cook breakfast right now? <laughs> We need a feast. Um, you're also good. Kids have to go to school. They're required. You guys are here freely, so I can't tell you how much I respect you being here. Can't tell you. Demodocus sings, um, and this time he tells the story of the gods. Once again, it's the, it's the poet who's aware of divine things. This, in this story, he tells the story of the adultery involving Ares and Aphrodite. Aphrodite is married to Hephaestus. And interesting, think about this. Ephesus, the god of craft, think about this. He's, in one sense, he's more clever than all the other gods. He's the one who makes things. And he tricks Ares when he's in bed, so he he captures him with his chains. Because he's crippled, he's had to learn to compensate, and so uses his mind. He's more far more clever. He's the maker god because of some infirmity. So there's probably a reason for the adultery. Hephaestus is crippled. Aphrodite apparently is drawn to Ares, and they go to bed with each other. But Hephaestus tricks them. So the gods are laughing at the story now. Our, um, at, that's being told to the factor down the bottom 129. No virtue in bad dealing. See, the slow one has overtaken the swift. As now, slow Hephaestus has overtaken Ares, swiftest of all the gods on Olympus by artifice, that word is so crucial. It's gonna keep, I'm gonna be, 10 minutes won't pass in these talks without some allusion to artifice, art, poetry by, I mean, a whole world of art. Remember that that Nestor's son beat out Menelaus in that chariot race by artifice, by art. He, He knew exactly what to do at the right moment and made that turn by art um, knowing how to use the things in front of you. By artifice, though he was lame, and Ares must pay the adulterous damage. This was the way of the gods as they conversed with each other, but the Lord Apollo, son of Zeus, said a word to Hermes. Hermes, son of Zeus, guide and giver of good things, tell me. (laughs) This is so good. Would you Caught tight in these strong fastenings, be willing to sleep in bed by the side of Aphrodite the golden. Remember that Hera went to Aphrodite to get all of those allurements to seduce suit. So however we're to imagine her beauty, I mean, imagine a beautiful woman, an extremely beautiful woman, and then project that beauty onto a goddess that it would be infinitely on, that, the, that, the, that a transcendent beauty it, is so great that it would overwhelm us. So we're talking about a divine beauty here. So would any of the gods be willing to sleep in bed by the side of Aphrodite the golden? Then in turn the courtier Agrifontes, that's Hermes, answered, Lord who strikes from afar Apollo, I wish it could only be, and there could be thrice this number of endless fastenings, and all you gods could be looking on, and all the goddesses, and still, I would sleep by the side of Aphrodite, <laughs> the beautiful sense of understated irony. I mean, that Homer has. For us, we are so arrogant. For us to pretend that we are somehow superior to Homer because he lived two thousand years ago. How many people have the ability to understate or, or see things ironically the way Homer does? It's, it's extraordinary. Anyway, they all laugh, um, <clears throat> and then. Um, how Kinnus has a couple dance. And once again, the couple's remarkable for its art. Their dancing almost defies gravity. The bottom of 130, Kinnus asked Helios and Leodimus to dance all by themselves. Sorry, I used to be able to read this. My eyesight is getting, and I can't read with glasses. one of them bending far back would throw it up to the shadowy ball, up to the clouds, and the other going high off the ground would easily catch it again before his feet came back to the ground. Then, after they had done that, they played their game and uh, uh, performed their dance on the generous earth, go down a few lines. Wonder takes me as I look at them. It's almost as if they defy gravity. Isn't that one of the things that amazes us when we watch? When we watch a good athlete or a good dancer. a um, a fine arts performer in some way. I think part of the attraction for us is that they seem to almost overcome (coughs) nature. They master it. (coughs) And and we're in wonder to see them do something that most of us can't do. Um, Odysseus is gonna make his farewell on page 133. Nausicaa says to Odysseus as he prepares to leave, um, that um, he, that he remember her as the one he owes his life to. Um, Demodocus sings once again and this time he sings of the Trojan horse and once again he brings tears to Odysseus's eye. Odysseus takes his, um, his mantle and covers his head and Alcinous sees it again and asks him to, again. He's troubled, this is twice now that he's wept. This is a heroic man. He's weeping. Um, and on page 135, in the, in a, one of the we keep getting these descriptions of the Phoenician ships, and they're all like this. But this is the most telling. Howinus says again, "Tell me who you are. Tell me your land, your neighborhood, and your city, so that our ships, straining with their own purpose, can carry you there." For there are no steersmen among the Falcons, neither are there any steering oars for them, such as other ships have. But the ships themselves understand men's thoughts and purposes, and they know all the cities of men and their fertile fields, and with greatest speed they cross the gulf of the Salt Sea, huddled under a mist and cloud. Nor is there ever any fear that they may suffer damage or come to destruction. It's at this point that he recalls a prophecy given to him. Says Poseidon would yet be angry with us because we are, we we are convoy without hurt to all men. He said that one day, as a well-made ship of five, and men came back from a convoy on the misty fate of the water, he would stun it and pile a great mountain over on top of it to hide it. So he gives this prophecy without any thought, and he's going to give Odysseus. If you've read, have you read? Do you know what happens? Mm-hmm. Do you all know? I do. No. <laughs> So take this away. When the phagans take Odysseus home, they They drop drop him off at at Ithaca. And by the way, he's asleep. And don't forget that. He's asleep when he comes home. The Falcons turn back to go home, and just as they're approaching their homeland, they are stunned, struck by the side, and turned into a mountain. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask why. But here, Harkinus is reminded of this prophecy of something that will come to pass, and he's not associated, he doesn't see the the relevance in the moment. He misses it. Um, so he said, tell us who you are on page 11, I mean, page 131, chapter nine, the bottom of the page, I am Odysseus, son of Laertes." crucial. They have been singing of the heroism and the first song that Demodica sang, he was singing of Odysseus, that's why he wept. So, interesting comment on the Falcons. On the the hero has been present to them all along and they didn't see him. Now Odysseus identifies himself and this heroic figure comes is present in body, in their midst. And now it's at this point that he will tell the story of his adventures. Um, and I just want to look at a couple brief and then stop with the readings. On page 138... He begins the story of his adventures, in the middle of the page. From Ilion, the wind took me and drove me ashore. It is Maros by the Caconians. I sacked their city and killed their people. His first act is in keeping with his actions for the last ten years. He's a sacker of city. The men are violent, all they want to do is storm a city. And any of us who grow up today aware of what's that post syndrome that so-called yeah of soldiers coming home after yeah. war if you've been living two years if you've been living two years on a tour of duty and you're you know watching legs get blown off and men die and, and you're you're surviving while these other men die how can it be otherwise It's how long is it going to take Odysseus to get home? Nine and a half years. Was Homer naïve about such things? I don't think so. First act is to sack a city. The next act, appropri- appropriately. What's the first thing you do when you want to get out of a war zone? Take drugs and forget about it. Next, I mean, it's so amazing what this man knew. He goes to the lotus eater and they offer them this flower that will make them forgetful of home. Bottom of 139. But any of them who ate the honey-sweet fruit of lotus was unwilling to take any message back or to go away. But they wanted to stay here with the lotus-eating people, feeding on lotus, Lotus, and forget the way home. He loses a a lot of his men here, and they all go back to the ship weeping because they don't want to leave. Cyclops, page 140. Top of the page. Cyclops, who putting all their trust in the immortal gods, neither plow with their hands nor plant anything, but all grows for them without seed planting. These people have no institutions, no meetings for councils. Rather, they make their habitations in caverns hollowed among the peaks of a high mountain, and each one is a law for his own wives and children, cares nothing for the others. I wasn't going to do this. Thing, but you've all got this list. On, on, yep. Do you have the study guide? Yep. If you have the study guide, you should have this. List. <coughs> you all have it? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. If I can turn this, it might help. Um, I want to come back to this, but just at this point, keep in mind the Cyclops live in caves, they have no technology. They don't plow. There's no art. They, they take Zeus and the gods for granted. They have um, no institutions, no law. Each one is a law unto himself. It's, it's Homer's anticipation of what we would call the private will the, the individual will making his private experiences more important than anything. No laws, no institutions. They live in caves. Um, Odysseus. Um, separates his men and they, um, the, or he takes his men and he goes into the cave. The Cyclops comes home and, important, the men kept persuading Odysseus to leave and he wouldn't listen to them and now he's stuck in the cave. Um, the middle of page 144, they offer themselves as suppliants, expecting the Cyclops to honor the rites of hospitality. You all know those, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The rites of hospitality were important then because everybody knew that a stranger could be a god. So they, in, in home after home, we've been having strangers come, they get bathed, they get fed. Before they even ask their names, how, how, how much into Odysseus stay before he identifies himself? It's at the very end. Mm-hmm. He was feasted, he was bathed, he slept overnight, and then they send him home. They're gonna, they're gonna take him home and it's only then that they ask his name. Um, Cyclops says, middle of the page, 144, Stranger, you are a simple fool or come from far off, and you tell me to avoid the wrath of the gods for fear of them. The Cyclops do not concern themselves over Zeus of the Aegis, nor any of the rest of the blessed gods, since we are far better, goes on, um, the Cyclops keeps picking up men, and very often he does it in pairs. He just crushes them on the ground and then gobbles them. Um, Odysseus um, gets the Cyclops drunk, and on page 146, um, he, he tells him, he will tell them his name, but they drink meanwhile, and um, Cyclops wants to know his name and Odysseus says at the bottom of the page, Cyclops, you ask me for my famous name, I will tell you then, but you must give me a guest gift as you have promised. Nobody is my name. My father and mother call me nobody, as do all the others who are my companions. So I spoke and he answered me in pitiless spirit, and I will eat nobody after his friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, how well does Cyclops use language? I'll I will, will eat well. nobody when what um, yeah. hear... But, um, He's drunk in stupor. Body parts are gurgling out of his mouth. Odysseus tells his men, quick, um, take this bean, you know, he sharpens it at the top of 147 and then puts it in the fire to temper it. I I said the other group on Last week, our middle son who teaches at Ave Maria in Florida has a nine-year-old? Nine-year-old daughter and Christer happens to be teaching the Odyssey right now and she said that her dad was going to let her read the copy I, I think it's a little bit young but but when she said that I mean I tell the kids stories whenever the kids the grandchildren stay at our house I always tell them it's a the kids won't go to sleep anymore I, and the stories that I tell tend to be I mean they're either really comic or there's some really grotesque ugly, violent things going on. I want my kids to be ready for this world. But they, but they, but they love the story. I mean, and they, I will never leave them there. I mean, there's always an answer to it. There's always an answer to the bad. That, And very often, it's involving young kids with their names. I mean, it's my way of sort of... But they love the stories. And it, there's a funny funny anecdote in our family. It's, it's become so much a part of their stayovers that they... It, it wouldn't be a restful night if if they didn't have a story.
1: Do you tell the same story? Oh no,
0: no! I always make <laughs> up doings. I mean, I try to, I try to create a story that shows my awareness of things going on in their life because I'm trying to. Oh, I see.
1: But move it to a mythic level, or there's there's
0: always historical? some well there's always something mythic, but by mythic I'm going to say <laughs> realistic. so... but. <clears throat> Anyway, what, I, I had this funny story from our youngest son because we tend to see their four boys more than any of the other kids. Um, Jonathan called one day and said that the um, kids had asked that he tell a story, and he never does, and so Jonathan, after, when it was bedtime, all the boys were put in bed, and Jonathan sat down and started to tell a story, and several minutes into the story. The kids were going. That's not a way to tell a story. That's not a way to tell a story. And Jonathan kept trying to go on, and they go, no, no, no. Papu tells the story. That's not a. He just got hooted out. <laughs> Since that moment, he's never tried to tell a story to his own kids. God. Anyway, guy. I was uh, Sienna, our our middle son's oldest daughter, was on. I was on the phone with her last week, and she said, Dad was going to let her read the. Odyssey, and, and I ran to get this passage, because I knew if she was going to read it. And I read this passage to her, I'll read this, and I'd forgotten that in one of the stories, i worked in this passage, and it wasn't about the, it wasn't, I wasn't retelling the the Odyssey, but what I did was work this into some story that the kids were involved in, you know, but I was using this image, and I'd forgotten that I told, her, and she said, "You." you told me that. And 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 her first son said, God, he he describes things so vividly, you feel like you're there that you can actually see it. This is the passage that, was on the phone loving this passage? I think because we were doing this class, you know, I'd been reading over the Odyssey again and came across this, and so it was on my mind. But here, I've got to read it for you guys, because this is, I love reading this. Now, where are you? Page 147. 147. He's told, Polyphemus is in a stupor, gurgling, body parts out of his mouth. <laughs> they're <It's laughs> spilling out of his mouth. The has told his men to get a beam and sharpen it. They've sharpened it and they're <clears throat> now putting it in the fire to temper it. Page 147. But when the beam of olive, green as it was, was nearly at the point of catching fire and glowed terribly incandescent. Then I brought it close up from the fire, my friends about me stood fast. Some great divinity breathed courage into us. They seize the beam of olive, sharp at the end, and lean on it into the eye, while I from above, leaning my weight on it, twirled it like a man with a brace and bit who bores into a ship timber. There's artifice again. Think about the artifice. Um, And I from above, leaning my weight on it, twirled it like a man with a brace and bit who bores into a ship timber. And his men from underneath, grasping the strap on either side, whirled it, and it bites resolutely deeper. So, seizing the firepoint hardened timber, we twirled it into his eye, and the blood boiled around the hot point, so that the blast and scorch of the burning ball singed all his eyebrows and eyelids, and the fire made the roots of his eye. Crackle. <laughs> Can you imagine the relish that I felt Halloween as I was describing story. to my reading this to my nine-year-old daughter? I mean, granddaughter. You think she loved it. it. Give them nightmares. Or oh, they <laughs> don't. Actually, her her sister gets really nervous when I tell stories. Her mother her mother says, "Keep going, keep going." Um, anyway, when Polyphemus starts hollering, all of the other Cyclops come running the bottom of 147. Why, Polyphemus, what do you want with this outcry through the immortal night and have made us all thus sleepless? Surely no mortal against your will can be driving your sheep off. Surely none can be killing you by force or treachery. The cage <laughs> <trying Polyphemus laughs> right. Good friends, nobody is killing me by force or treachery. <laughs> so then the others, speaking in winged words, gave him an answer. If alone as you are, None uses violence against you. Why? There is no void in the sickness sent by great Zeus. <laughs> so you had better pray to your father, Lord Poseidon. Anyway, they're gone. You know what happens. Yeah. Odysseus and his men hide under the sheep, so when Polyphemus feels he can't, and they get out. And, and interestingly enough, when he's far enough away from the cave, he hollers back to Polyphemus, who's blind now, and identifies him and and, um, and then Polyphemus throws a rock and, um, and we he learns on page 150 in the middle that the prophecy that he had been given that a man would come one day has now been fulfilled um, so he knew all along um, Circe has the similar prophecy the Alkinus, the Faikans the had a similar prophecy Hold on to that because we'll come to that in a minute. So, is,
1: are you saying the Cyclops knew this was coming?
0: Well, what Polyphemus says here, he says, "I was told somebody would come, but I thought it would be an ugly, knittery man, and you know." Well, so he didn't, he didn't connect the prophecy with the person in front of him, and then he's blinded. And um, in the middle of one fifty. I must lose the sight of my eye at the hands of Odysseus. But I was always on the lookout for a man more handsome and tall, so great endowment and strength. Not this small, nittery, ugly-looking guy. Think about the vanity of Polyphemus here. Mm -hmm. He comes to Circe's Island. I'm going to hold this up here, um, because I want to stop. We've got some things I've got to do here. He comes to Circe's Island. Hermes meets him. she has drugged all of the surrounding animals. Um, they fawn around her, her place. And um, Hermes meets Odysseus and tells him to um, go to sleep with her. <coughs> Put that down for her on page 160. towards the top, so spoke Ergo Daphontes, um, he, he searches the ground and goes to this plant and plucks out this plant and said, the gods call it Molly. It's hard for mortal men to dig it up, but the gods have power to do this. He says, take it to her, show it to her, and it will prevent her from using her spells on you. So even though the other men have been cast, have been enchanted or are under her enchantments, he gets free of it and he sleeps with her, you know, for a year. She's singing in her cave, um, working on her, on her shuttle. Um, let me stop here. One, um, one more thing. Before he leaves, Circe will tell him to go to Tiresias mm-hmm. in the land of the dead to find his way home. He has, he has to go to the land of the dead. We have to look at that next time, but in order for him to get home, he goes to the land of the dead and then he comes back to Circe's island and it's Circe that tells him what he will have to do with um, Scylla and Cribdis and the Sirens, and Thranachia. So she warns him about what's going to happen um, at each of those and he's prepared. We have to ask why or from her. Um, one last thing just quickly, we, we skipped over the Um um, I just want to look at one brief passage with them on on, um, on page sorry we're just um, one, book 10, line 80. What page is that? 154. What is it, Doug? 154. Yeah, they come to the um, over on page 155. But when they entered the glorious house, they found there a woman as big as a mountain peak, and the sight of her filled them with horror. And once she summoned famous Antiphides, her husband, from their assembly and he devised dismal death against them. He snatched up one of my companions, prepared him for dinner." Um, at the bottom of the page, they are attacked by these um, giant men, like giants, who so standing along the cliffs, pelted by men with man-sized boulders, speared them like fish, and carried them away for their joyless feasting. He lost all of his ships but one, in his experience with the Lestriganese. And remember, the queen of the is a woman as large as a mountain. So, let me stop for one second. Sorry about that. Plato in the Republic, when he talks about the soul, I've I've given you this image before, he says the soul has three faculties. And he he gets this clearly from Homer. There's a rational faculty, Um, if we were on a die, if we were in a desert dying from thirst, we saw two pools of water, and next to one of them was a sign that said poisonous. We would make a distinction, our reason would make a distinction, not to eat that, um, and drink from, or not to drink from it, to drink from the other, so we have this rational power that's capable of making decisions, making judgments about things. There's an appetitive side to man, because he lives in a body, the appetites, and I've given you this before, the appetites can take two forms. They can be the appetites for noble things, like the good, the beautiful, the true, those things that make man honorable. And we call that, Homer called it, Plato called it, thymos anger. It's the appetite that, that wants some higher good and that has to deal with the things that threaten to take that good away. So that if, um, if a robber came into our house or somebody did something to our daughter or our wife or our husband, something in us would, get, would be aroused to anger to do something to stop that person from doing whatever that is, because it means that much to us. The lower appetites are directed towards the physical things, the bodily things. Sorry, it's not the physical things, the things of the body. Now, just quickly, because um, this is going to play in a major way into everything that happens here. What rules the soul of, let's say, the Cyclops? Is there any question about that? The lower appetite. Right? Yeah. Or or, they're brutal.
1: Do they consider him having a soul soul at all? Yeah.
0: Yeah. All things, everything in nature. Everything in nature. Everything in nature. nature. Nature The, The gods are in nature. Okay. You know, wood, trees. I mean, nymphs, are you know, rivers. It's there's a soul. And Homer would say all things have a soul and mean it. But there's a difference between all things and humans because humans have a rational soul. And it's but so the the cyclops would be here. Clearly, right? Yeah. And wouldn't Odysseus be somewhere here? I mean, he's a man of many ways. He uses his mind. Right. Getting out of problems. He's trying to get home. Mm-hmm. And he's spirited at times. So he gets angry. He has to, He's going to fight the suitors. Mm-hmm. So you can see this. I don't want to go into this in any depth right now, but I want you just to hold on to this. Um, where would you put the suitors at home?
1: Or are they physical? Physical.
0: Wouldn't it? Yep. Um, the suitors would be here. I'm giving something away here. In some ways, isn't Cyclops an archetypal image of what goes on in the suitors? That, that mm-hmm. he is an image of <clears> the <throat> brute in them and what they do. The suit. The, Polyphemus picks up the men, dashes them, crushes them, eats them. There's a woman at the end of the story before Odysseus will kill the suitors who says. These men have been eating away my life. They have broken my knees, broken them down. Because in order for the cyclops, the suitors, to live the life they've been living, they have to break down the life, they have to take for granted and use other people to get them to feed them.
1: Would that be like breaking down civilization?
0: Yeah. Or life? But people, People. let's keep it concrete, just people. That is, they're using people for their own means. What about the maidservants? I don't know if you're there yet, but the, the maidservants are sleeping with the suitors, nightly. Odysseus is going to kill them off too, the women. Where are they? Clearly here, okay, so just... Now, did you say the word yeah, for appetite
1: to, is rambles? What, what no, no, I'm just using the word appetite
0: generally, but it takes two forms. The middle form, the the the, ap- the desires for the higher things, yes, was given the name thumos, anger. Themos? Thumos. Thumos. Th-H-Y. Oh, okay. Okay. Thumos. Thumos. T H Y okay. M O S. Thumos. Um Anyway, hold on to that image because it it's going to be important for what we do. Because I'm going to ask as we go along. Um, where are all the people that he that the cities that he met, the peoples that he met, if these are archetypes, and I believe they are, where do we find them at home? So as you continue your reading, and Odysseus gets home, what I'm going to ask you to do for next time in our last meeting, the fourth meeting we have, is see if you can be aware of where that underworld, these adventures that he has, what he learned from them, what he took away from them, that makes it possible for him to have a better home when he gets home. Where does he find them how does he deal with them? Is that clear? Yes. Because what's at issue here is reading. How well does he read? How well does he learn from, this, from all that he learned on his journeys to make it possible for him to bring order to his home, to bring justice and order. That's what this whole book is about. You
1: said, I think you said last week, something about him being able to look below the surface. Say again? I think you said this phrase. Uh, Odysseus learns to reflect in a way to look below the surface of things. He sees it at another level. Yes, yes. And that's what you're saying here.
0: Yes, yeah. And now that's what I hope I can make clear here. Um, Before I do, I want to just make... Got two things to do before we finish up here. This and then I want to read some things. But so, if we looked at this briefly at this point and brought it up to date, this is what we see. Telemachus set off to find his father, and we saw that all the homes in the opening are in some form of disarray. There's some disorder going on. Families struggle with disorders. We all know we all have families. We all grew up in them. He's learning about families. Odysseus is at sea. And remember, I told you the sea is in some ways an image of grace. It's an image of what's irrational. It's not man's home. But here, he has to learn to deal with it. And the sea, in this sense, is all those things that are indefinite, that shift forms. Remember when, he, when, he, when the men had to capture Proteus, the old man of the sea, and his daughter mm-hmm. said to Menelaus, hold on to him. This, I, when I used to teach this in class, I'd tell the kids, When things get rough in your life, hold on. You know, trust. Menelaus has said, when the old man of the sea shifts forms, when the people that you think you know suddenly change, hold on, because the nature of life is shifting, changing constantly. Menelaus had to hold on. He became a bear, a lion, a wolf, a tree, remember? So the sea is that from which all things come, it's that which is indefinite. It's like I said that it's like being. In Dante's world, in St. Thomas's world, it would be being. All things come from it. And all things seem to shift. Things in life don't remain the same. So one of the things Menelaus had to do was hold on while it changed in order to learn from him how to get home. Odysseus is doing this big time here. He's at sea this whole time. And it's here where he learns all these things. So we're entering what I'm going to call the world of the unconscious, the subterranean part of us, the dark part that we don't see very well. When he tells the story, he's giving visible images to a whole world that's invisible to us. We can call it a metaphysical or an ontological world. It's the deeper world. And I hope it's clear he cannot get home. He cannot get home without reflecting on this. He has to tell these stories. He has to learn about them. He has to become self-reflective. He has to learn. Um, or he won't be able to bring order at home. Um, and is, here's, that, is that unique
1: to the Greeks that if you don't tell the story, you cannot wake up, or as it were? Yeah, or reflect. Or yeah. reflect.
0: Yeah. Right. So that, that comes sure. from, the, from, from something like this. Oh. And think of of the importance of Socrates in in this growing tradition because Socrates, if you know the stories, Socrates was told by the Oracle that he was wise, wiser than other men and he puzzled over that for a long time and came to the conclusion that if he was wiser than other men it was because he he didn't know and he admitted that he didn't know. So Socrates' whole enterprise was to question himself, to know thyself. Opening lines of um, John Paul's Fide Ratio is a quote going back to Plato and Socrates, "To know, to know yourself. We cannot, we cannot fulfill our journey here on earth without struggling to know ourselves. And which is a pain I'm going to say it, which is a painful thing because it means looking at those things in ourselves that we don't want we don't want to see. Remember that was my opening class on this that this, if this is prophetic, it's because it's helping us to see those things that ordinarily we don't want to see. That's what prophets do. He has to learn to see himself before he can go go home. Now, we saw the disorders here. We've seen two things right now. Because remember, we've been talking about the logos and the importance of norms. You know, like what it is to. I, I, speaking for myself, there are moments. I Speaking for myself, there are moments in my life when I feel absolutely normal, and they're really rare. Well, I'm I'm being honest, too. I mean, the the disorders that I carry around me the riot that goes on inside of me. But there are times when I feel utterly calm, and it's at those moments where I consciously am aware that that's what being normal. We we live in a society that wants to encourage us to always be Hector's, to be greater than everybody else. Chesterton is a man I love because he was the first one that made me realize that being ordinary was where we should be. This whole thing is about norms. The Phaeacians and the Cyclops live together at the farthest removes of the earth. And we, I didn't read that passage, but it's there. And the, the Phaeacians move because the Cyclops became so over- overbearing. Both of them live at the ends of the earth where nobody comes. We learn that from, both of, from what I've just read here. They're not used to people being around. The Phaeokians are people of technology. There's no technology here. What the Greeks, by the way, call technē. Technē in the Greek means to me. That's all it means, technē, to me. But it's the rational mind making things. The Cyclops use no technology. They take God for granted. They're like the people who grew up today saying, let God do it. God will take care of it. That's Phyak- I mean, that's, Cyclope- that's Cyclopean. Let God do it. So, the, the Fayakians' Nasika is a dreamer. She idealizes everything. They are people of art, their cultivation. I'm the, to me, they are the prototype of modern America suburbia. They have nothing to do with battles or wars. They want to get away, they want to live in a world of peace. It's an ideal world. It's great by it's where we live. <laughs> um, the Cyclops are at its opposite extreme. They're brutal. They live in caves. They eat people. They devour. So Homer's showing us the extremes here. When he sits down to tell his story, he tells all of these adventures where we learn about the minds of men. Okay, so the sea is at the center from one perspective, and another it seems to me, Ithaca. And we have to see what Odysseus will bring to Ithaca from having learned about all these other things. What what it takes to be, um, what it takes to make a marriage as good as it can be. The, all the disorders that we have to deal with in order to make that possible. So, let me stop and right do now. You, I want do you
1: see any hint, hint on this? Because I I work with a lot of addiction. And one of the things that you, uh, in here, you see, like, taking those flowers and eating, you know, so that you're unconscious. And you you can almost say, man, you just look at the news that there's, it's, heroin is, it's yes. e- epithetic yes. in our culture. Yes, 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 And they people want to stay unconscious.
0: Yes. You know, they yes. want, you know, and so yes. you see this seduction yes. of it all. And because it's too fain- painful to be conscious. I mean, that's the, trouble. You, did I, you know, I'm coming to it, actually, I'm coming to it. You're actually anticipating something. You know, I'm want to stop here because I want to focus for a moment in the time that we have left on language and why words are important, particularly for this whole enterprise of getting home, okay? But let me stop for a moment. Before I tackle this last part, do you have any, any questions? Of, I hope you can see the, Why this notion of the Logos? There is so much intelligibility, so much being offered in nature to us as humans that in our modern world, we don't see anymore because science reduces it to matter. And the fundamentalists deny the Logos. The Christian fundamentalist says nature's corrupt. Islam takes it away because they don't believe Christ is God, but he's present in nature. So we live in a world in in which almost nobody anymore sees God present in nature, active around them. My whole effort in the Iliad was to, you know, to, I mean that's part of the beauty. The gods are involved in every aspect of everything. You know, they're all they're on the field everywhere. There.
1: You think this is where the church got natural law?
0: Mm-hmm. That- yeah, I, I, yeah. I, 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 this is what a good question. Yeah, I do. I mean, if you look back at the poets, it, it's there the one. It's here in Homer, it's already present. If you look at um, Sophocles in the Antigone, when in, in if you know that um, Creon's gonna, she's defying Creon, the king, because she wants to bury his brother, and the king won't allow her um, to do that because the brother <laughs> fought against the king. And her appeal to Cree on the king is to say, there's a universal divine unchanging law that I'm following that's higher than the law of the state. So at the very beginning, there's a powerful sense of, this is the ground of natural law. Plato and Aristotle will conceptualize it, Thomas will write a treatise on it, but this is, this is where it's concrete and real. And me, one of the great losses to the Catholic, to the modern Catholic today, is we have no, the Catholic, modern Catholic has no sense of nature. Why? He takes his faith for granted. He just grows up and we don't relate to nature. But there's, even if we're encouraged with all the homilies that say, God is around us, he's in back of us, he's in front of us, he's inside of us. How much do we believe that? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. But anyway, let me, let me finish here, because it's, I want to, words, what are words and why are they important? I've been stressing them from the very beginning. How well do people read in this? I talked about it with the Iliad. How well does Hector read? Does he listen well? Do the suitors listen? Do they see? Athena's present, she gives a prophecy. They don't hear. Telemachus is skeptical. Most people I think I made this argument, I I certainly feel it pretty deeply as a teacher having worked with young people, that typically we, all of us, don't read very well. We take reading for granted, we take words for granted. What are words? Words bring reality up close to us. Words are educators of thought and feeling. They bring up close, and they even bring into us the world outside. Words. Wait, wait, no, oh, sorry. God, my In alio essa. God, Robert. It's getting worse. God. In in. Words make reality present in alio essa. In alio essa, in another mode. The Latin for the medieval, in another mode. Words make reality present to us in another mode. Suzanne. <laughs> has pictures on the fridge. I think most women do, of families. If you go into a kitchen, it's so, it's so common to see pictures all over the house, and very often pictures on the fridge. A woman spends a lot of time in the kitchen cooking. It's interesting. I, I, I don't have a, I don't have a phone. I, I won't get one. I don't, that whole world bothers me, but Susanna's constantly bringing the phone to me and showing pictures that are, you know, texted from all of our kids, um, she's so much more um, ready, eager to see those things. I, I'm often, but in another mode. Why are they there in the fridge? Because that person, that child, Christopher or Kayla or whoever it is, is present in another mode. Why in church? Why do we have a statue of Mary or Christ or the, you know, in another mode? They're there. So words make reality present to us. We read this stuff because suddenly a whole aspect of reality is brought to us. We take it into us and make it one with ourselves. So words are capable of doing that. How well do the Cyclops read? They don't. They don't. They don't. One eye. What does that mean? One. 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 One thing that Homer's trying to teach us is to hold two levels of reality together at the same time. That he's trying to help promote what I would call a vision of depths or distances, a, vision, a way of seeing that involves depths or distances. To see in the concrete episode Diomedes fighting Glaucos, you know, whatever the scene was, Achilles fighting Hector, to find a point in that concrete episode that connects with something higher what we call the anagogic, the divine level. It's to teach us to see with analogies, to bring two levels together in the same moment. So that the mystery that we're all involved in gets partly open to us. Because the alternative to that is to read like the Cyclops, to read literally, to stay on just the physical level of things and miss. Nobody's killing me by force or treachery, you know? So the whole function of, the the importance of poetry is to bring that world to us up close, in another mode, in in medius, in alio essa, in another mode, okay? So some of the things I want, we've looked at epos, epic. It means a word, but it's a divine word given to us that the poet receives, epic. Napios, remember that word, napios. Fools. Remember in the opening it was one of the major things. Fools. They didn't get home. Why not? Because they don't read well. Fools means Napios, childlike. He can't use language. He can't understand. Suffering. Suffering. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. Long-suffering Odysseus. What does the word suffering mean? This is going to be amazing, I think. It was amazing for me when I first looked into it and thought about it. Long-suffering is over and over and over again, it says he's suffering. Um.
1: You know, you, you know I think of the word uh, incompatible, people will say we're getting divorced because we're incompatible Yeah. and what that word really means is they're not able to suffer together, <laughs> they're not <laughs> able to <laughs> suffer,
0: they refuse. Suffering, suferi, from the Latin, suferi, or the, actually from the French back. When we talk about suffering, we usually think about suffering at different levels. There's physical suffering, which I think is the most, well, the easiest, the simplest, when kids cut their finger or we get a physical wound. There's another level of suffering um, that we could call anguish or anxiety, that um, we feel a tightness in our breathing, something's upsetting us. We're, you know. There's a deeper kind of suffering that I would call something more along the lines of anguish or torment it's what we feel when we've been betrayed which is almost wholly spiritual and at least in my own experiences I say that's by far the more overwhelming if we feel betrayed it's like our whole life is it's the word that I'm looking for it's like a rupture in being that every, being is ruptured it's divided it's cut it's like we fall into a black hole it's it's what I've called, in tragedy, the tragic abyss. A dis- Achilles was isolated and alone. He entered that abyss. And it's there where he learned to see things differently. The word suffering comes from the Latin sufere, to carry up from underneath. Think about it. suferi, to carry up from underneath, to bear. To bear, to carry up from underneath. Um, to bear, to bear up. This is what I love about it. To carry it from underneath, hence to sustain or to bear. From fede, to carry, which is the source of our English. Bear, fede. of our English. Fertile. I love this. Fertile. It, it's meant to be productive. Fertile. It's where growth takes place. This is what a French philosopher once said. We only suffer in relationships. In relation to, if, we, if we were like the Cyclops, we'd probably go off and think we'd be happy in our world. Um, this is a, by a contemporary. Dead now, but a man named Louise Lavelle. We are told that in pain we pass to a lesser degree of perfection. It's inevitable that this passage should affect our interior activity. We have an awareness of what we've just lost. It pains us. We know that at one point we had something and now no longer have it a husband, a wife, a child, a leg, a job, and whatever it is. We feel a loss in us, it's the source of a suffering and anguish. But the very awareness of this loss introduces in us, as has always been held, a growth of consciousness which is not itself a loss. To be conscious, to be reflective, to give birth to something new in conscious. Consequently, there is born in us a new being, very different from the being we were before we began to suffer. My spontaneity is curbed. I'm not, I hope, My, I'm not as cavalier, I hope as I was when I was younger, not as innocent, thinking that everything was okay when I know it wasn't. Um, My spontaneity is curved, it's true, but my reflection and my will come into play to compensate for what has been taken away from me. My activity, which has been up to this point instinctive, is now spiritual. My will is changed. My mind is changed. We bear up something fertile. It's productive of something. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. Okay, Homer finds wisdom in suffering. We all know, we have, we've all been told forever that the wise men say that we can't attain wisdom without some measure of suffering, that the very basis of our wisdom is suffering. That We grow to see things differently through our suffering. <coughs> the question that I've been asking, has he learned by the way, with, with respect to this question of reading and using words, who, who is the worst reader in this whole epic? Who, reads, who misreads the most? Penelope, the suitors, the maidservants, Telemachus, Odysseus, his companions? Who's the worst reader, would you say?
1: Trick question.
0: Oh, be still.
1: <laughs> God.
0: Odysseus. Why?
1: Because he keeps being told these things and he keeps ignoring. I mean, everything he's been told, don't go to the island, and he goes to the island. His, his um, comrades say, I mean, everything he's told not to do, he goes and does it anyhow. It's, it's just.
0: Yeah, I think that's a little bit of an overstatement, but it, I. Agree. It might be a little bit. He, he's, <laughs> he's wise, he's adventurous, he's exploring, he's doing things, but a couple of times with Circe and. Um, I know it was with Circe and I think with Calypso the the, his companion said, don't do that. Right, don't do that. And he does it. Um, um, Virgil's going to make a lot of this in the Aeneid, but I think there's something to be said about it. Nobody reads well in this book. I said it, but people tend to be blind. They're not conscious enough of what they do. Has he learned telling these stories to reflect on them so that what he brings to home is on somebody who's more attentive, more careful. He puts on a disguise. He puts himself away. First thing he does is get himself out of the way to deal with problems at home. He has to learn to put himself away. That act. But up until that point, it seems to me, he, he's one of the worst readers in the book. And it's not because he, the, the suitors are awful readers. So are Cyclops, they're, they're they're worse reader. It seems to me for worse motives. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it. Most of the people in here are not, they don't read well. Long-suffering. The word calypso, this is crucial, comes from the word calyptane. From the Greek, calypso. Calyptane. Which means to cover or conceal. From which we get... Apocalypse. What is an apocalypse? Apocalypse. upon Revelation. To reveal, to uncover, to unconceal. <laughs> Revelation is bringing out from concealment the dark things. Now think about Calypso's role in this. I've said this before, the two gravest dangers facing Odysseus in his journeys are from, well, most of the adventures are women, some, some archetypal form of something woman. Lots of them destructive and violent. The Lestrigones queen is larger than a mountain. I want to come to that in a minute. Nine of those years are with Calypso and Circe. Calypso offers Odysseus immortality. She seems to be an archetypal image of the beauty of a woman that men associate with perfection. In her, I have my rest. When you see that perfection anywhere, it's like it draws a man into it, to rest in it. Sexually, spiritually, the beauty of a woman. Calyptine is the same source of our word, hell. How much homework, school, Dante? Hell is cognate to hole, cavern, or "hollow." Where do the women generally reside? The, the cyclops? Caves, holes. Um, by our very being, Calypso seems to present a threat to Odysseus by keeping him hidden, concealed from others, and possibly from himself. The state of being in darkness or hidden in hell, in a hole, in this immortality, the spiritual world she offers to him, stands in contrast to the action of Kleos in the Iliad, which requires that a hero come out. The great call for, the, for man in nature is to come out, to be who he is, to find himself. Remember, nobody in the Iliad dies without being named. To become who we are, as, as or whatever we've been given to be. This kleos, this need of a man to come out to realize himself, is so important that all three heroes—Achilles, Telemachus, and Odysseus—they grieve at the thought that they would die in the other way that was heroic. Remember when Achilles is in the river, he says, "I wish I'd died back there in the land." When Odysseus is wrecked at sea, when he makes the wreck, he, he's grieving because he doesn't want to die at sea. Telemachus grieves to think that his father might have died in some heroic, unheroic way. It's natural for for us as humans to come out. Calypso poses the greatest threat, he's there eight years. So whatever that is, it represents some aspect of woman um, that that poses a threat to man. Um, Odysseus's name means distasteful, it comes from the Greek. Oduusome. Oops, I, A I. Sorry. A D O U S S O M A I. To be angry with or hate. Wherever Odysseus goes, he brings pain. If he's a norm, he, he's he's like a prophet. He's, he's going to be distasteful. What happens to the Phaeacians when they convey him home?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Their ships turn into a mountain. What happens with the Cyclops? He loses an eye. Wherever he goes, he brings pain. And remember, this is really interesting, I uh, forgot this. Um, the the Phaeacians have no fear. This, this whole thing of technology, it, it, it seems to me there's nothing about our technological world that Homer didn't understand that it's true. How do their ships move? Like thoughts over the sea. What do we do with technology? We get from here to Egypt. Or, like thought. Through what? Techne, Technology. What's the great danger for anybody who begins to feel like he doesn't have to be afraid of the sea, nature. What's the gravest danger?
1: Self-destruction?
0: No. What's the gravest danger? To be to to approach dealing with nature as if you have no fear of it, as if you could master it.
1: That you're God. Hmm? That you're
0: God. Well, who's in the sea? Who's of the sea? Poseidon. Poseidon? The gods. Is there any aspect of nature in which the gods aren't present? No. To have the hubris that you think you can overmaster nature to not have any fear of it what happens to them at the very end What did you guys what's that movie the uh, Jurassic Park Yeah same thing mm-hmm. I mean it's like he's Red Homer Just when you think you can master nature and get a hold of it what happens I mean that's the whole Jurassic yeah, sequel I mean that sequence of movies Yeah. Huh? Just when we think we've mastered nature, don't all of it? We go through nature thinking just just about the time I've mastered something, we find ourselves on our face, on the floor. You know, this sense of hubris of mastering nature. Odysseus is like an image of what's normal that that is the source of pain to call other people back to reality, whether it's the Phaeacians or the Cyclops or. Um, I'm gonna read this just for fun and then we're done because it's it shows how clever Homer is. This is an example of the punning that goes on in the Greek that we lose in our translation. When Polyphemus asks Odysseus' name, he calls himself Nobody. He uses the Greek word Utis, which sounds like Odysseus' name, Odis, okay? Nobody is pronounced Utis like Otis, Odysseus is what Odusomia. Odysseus is nobody sounds like Odysseus name Otis Later after Odysseus is in blind the Cyclops and his fellow Cyclops come and ask what's wrong he says nobody Utus is killing me Utus is killing me Odysseus is killing me Utus is killing me Does the Cyclops see that not a clue not a clue. Fittingly, the other Cyclops conclude that if no one, metis, no one, that's what they say, nobody, admit nobody's killing you, it's just like when I read it here, it was funny. No one, metis, is hurting me. He doesn't need their help. The two words they use, metis, M-E, this is a circumflex, T-I-S, metis, sound together exactly the same as metism, which means cunning. Who is Dysias? He's a man of cunning. He's reputed to be a man of cunning. He uses his wit all the time. Um, which means cunning. The ironies pile up here. Odysseus is nobody. He's not there. He's no one. He's hidden in the cave of the Cyclops. And at a time when one of their own most desperately needs their help, the Cyclops can't see that the no one who is hurting Polyphemus is a person of cunning. They cannot see. All of these puns are in the word because Homer's showing us these multiple dimensions of reality through language and while he's doing it, we're aware that the Cyclops live in a cave and see none of this. So what Homer's doing well, is not only telling us a story, he's trying to cultivate a love of language to see, to see beneath the surface of things. That's what, so. Next week, here, next, here's what I, I had two questions for you, here, wait, look, two questions, two, three. next week, where are the wander, can we find what happens in the wanderings at home? All of them there. Skill and Charybdis, all of them. One, um, what do we learn about men and women from all of these things, the, the archetypes, particularly in the land of the dead? What do we learn about men and women? And the last one is, all of the companions are destroyed on the island of Thrinathia, off the island, when they eat the cattle of Helios. Yeah. They've undergone lots of trials. Why over something seemingly as ordinary, as, as mundane as eating cattle? Why are they all destroyed then? That's all. Just mm-hmm. you can wrestle with those. So,
1: what chapters do we have
0: for next time? On 1 through 6, 7 through 13. So, 14 through. 18. 18 thir- 13 through 18. 13. 13 through 18.
1: Sorry, 13 through 18. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, I'm always nice glad to you. see you guys. Thank, mm-hmm. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. I'm doing well. I need to wrap up
0: You. Oh, you're welcome. I met your friend the other day. I her. She was at the gym. She said she sat behind you that Sunday.
1: Oh, uh, Carol. Carol and yeah.
0: her husband just converted. Oh yeah. Uh huh.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Awesome couple. Yeah.